Andrea Camilletti, one of the most beloved modern Italian writers, died on the 17th of July, 2019, leaving behind a legacy of detective novels unmatched in charm and wit. This episode is my tribute to him. And welcome back to Diddy and Hawthorne in the In-Between. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz, and you're listening to my podcast about the relevancy of literature in the 21st century. Now bookmark that book, and let's begin. I do include superficial plot spoilers in this episode, the kinds of things that would be in the summary on the back of a book, but I do not reveal any of the key plot elements of the story, nor do I reveal any of the features essential to understanding the heart of the murder therein. Therefore, you can sit back and enjoy it without fear of spoilers. The English translation of The Other End of the Line by Andrea Camilleri came out on September 3rd, and it was a book that I pre-ordered in July on the day of his death after hearing about the significance of him and his work from my Italian roommate, Gabriella. I hadn't heard of him before his death, but I'm immensely grateful now to have read some of his work because of how valuable and enjoyable I found it to be. My perceptions about the book before I read it were quizzical, if that's the right word to use, because hearing about Camilleri through his death was a little like hearing about Michael Jackson through his death, which, by the way, was a real event that happened to me and also happened to spark a serious Michael Jackson obsession that lasted from about the ages of 7 to 10. But anywho, I had no idea what to expect from this first novel of his. If anything, I thought it would be as most American literary fiction is quite highbrow, a bit difficult to understand, and chalk through with metaphors and obscure Latin references, but enjoyable nonetheless. In other words, I knew it was a detective novel, but couldn't garner many thoughts about that outside of that fact. Superficially, by the way, I do have to mention the cover of this new translation, which happens to be a hyper-realistic cartoon rendition of a pair of tailor scissors stabbed through an iPhone, is amazing. There are a few other pieces on the frame of this book cover, such as a measuring tape and in the background an array of bolts of fabric of many muted colors, but what I love specifically about the cover and what drew me into it initially was how it's one of those covers that unfolds as you read the book, so every so often the narrative itself gives a clue as to why such and such object is on the cover, and I love books like that. Let's just say that it was quite a pleasant surprise for me to realize that the cover unfolded in the way it did as I was reading. I haven't read a book with the cover that was that thought through in that way for such a long time, and it was quite refreshing to notice. The first thing that I noticed as I started reading was how different the translation was than what I was expecting, which was something a bit more pompous, as with many British detective depictions, for example. The way that certain phrases were translated, especially as you were first feeling your way around the novel, came unexpectedly, which I felt a spoke to how little I know about Italian as a language, and b illuminated that I don't read as many translations as I used to. Getting into the translation itself, the novel was translated by Stephen Sartorelli, who is an American poet and translator. He's done many, many of Camilletti's novels, if I'm not mistaking, all of the Montalbano novels to this date, and the other end of the line is number 24 of those series, and as well, um, he plans to continue through the series with the 25th novel of the series planned to come out in the first half of next year, 2020. He is therefore quite celebrated, as Camilleri's original style and sense of narration is said to shine through the translation, which, if you know anything about translation, is an incredibly tricky thing to maneuver. 
Considering translations like this one are difficult because of the different schools of thought that have arisen around translation as a school in the last 20 years or so. On the one hand, what I would consider to be the more traditionalist school says that the translator should be practically invisible, that they should make no attempt at creation whatsoever within the text, or in other words, that translation is more of an act of preservation than it is of creation. The other school, predictably, says no, that's not the best interpretation of what a translator should do. In fact, translation is more about creation in the new language from the language of the original text than it is about finding a way to preserve the exact state of the original text in the translated version. What I like about this translation in particular, and keep in mind that I've only referenced the English or the translated version of the text, was that it seems to be taken as consistent with the style and voice of the original version, Camilleri's version, while taking creative and artistic liberties, such as with the passage that I'm about to read in a minute, that are just, in the end, so fun to read and fun to be a part of as an audience member. The Montalbano detective series centers around Salvo Montalbano, or said with the correct pronunciation, Salvo Montalbano. Not to risk being offensive, by the way, that was my first and last attempt at trying to correctly pronounce the Italian names and what follows are my southern anglicized versions of the rest of them. Montalbano is an inspector of the fictional Vigata in Sicily, a solver of crimes, and we meet him in this particular novel in the midst of the 2016 migrant crisis, as between 30 and 400 immigrants began arriving on the shores of Italy every night, straining relationships at many of the police stations that had to cover the arrivals, thus working both day and night shifts and straining the policemen themselves. Secondly, what develops a bit later on is the curious murder of a local seamstress, and that second event is the one that takes over the plot for the rest of the book. As a quick overview of characters, Montalbano is supported at the police station by the station's secretary, Caturella, or often just Cat for short, and Fazio and Mimi Algello, two fellow police officers, they, along with Montalbano's cook, Adelina, who's mentioned but never appears, as well as his girlfriend, Livia, who only appears in person once in the very beginning, and then through nightly phone calls in the latter ends of the book, are the recurring characters of the series, and the characters that one would expect to see in most, if not all, of the detective Montalbano books. The other important character characters that are exclusive, from what I understand, to this novel in particular are Miriam, an Islamic seamstress assistant, who speaks four languages perfectly and is a constant help to Montalbano throughout this investigation, Elena, a tailor recommended to Montalbano by Olivia, and who is also murdered within the first hundred pages, Nicola, an old man who worked for Elena, Lillo, a young tailor who lusted after and also worked for Elena, and Teresa, Elena's sister-in-law. There are also a few minor motivating characters that appear, such as Dr. Osman, who's a dear friend of Montalbano, a translator of Arabic during the migrant crisis, and as well a past lover of Elena, and others such as the autopsy director at the funeral home, who Montalbano has a long-standing bitterness towards, and Montalbano's taxi driver at the very end, that I'm not sure of the consistency of exactly. It seems equally likely to me that they would either show up in another novel or just be exclusive to this one. Now it is time to go through my bunny ears from while I was reading the novel, starting with a passage I promised to read earlier with regards to the translation aspect. 
This one is from page 234 if you want to follow along. And the reason why I'm going to attempt reading this aloud is because Caterella, Montalbano's assistant at the station, has a regional accent. And what the translator does to carry that through is to give him sort of a mix between a New York City and a Cockney accent in English. I'm going to try to read it as written, we'll see how this goes. The phone rang. Ah, chief. Ere to happen a be a Mr. Measles online wantin' a talk to yous poisonally in poison. Tell me, cat, is he contagious? Oh, my gah, chief. I don't know. You think he might be contagious? Ian, over the phone? Matrasanta, chief. When I was a kid, I got the mamps, but never the measles. Do this, cat. Put him through to me, and then go to disinfect your ear with a little alcohol. Thanks, chief. You really know so much. This is Montalbano here, and you are Mr... And thus the passage ends. I love that passage so much because it's so difficult to read even when you're reading it silently, and not to mention reading it out loud, but... There's something just so characteristic about Caterella, and it makes you miss him, and it makes you almost familiarize yourself with him, and I love the fact that there's this personal touch within the narrative, within this character, that is just so rememberable. And if we're talking about how to make characters believable, how to make them seem real, well, you breathe life into them by breathing normal speech into them, speech that is copied over in this very charming way. In terms of the narrative itself and how Camoletti decides to break up the narrative, I loved two things about it. One, the frequent humor that he writes in, and two, the moments of stillness that he gives Montalbano for the sake of the narrative. Going along with the first one, one of my favorite things about the book was how much time Camoletti spends on food and eating. Montalbano usually takes a shot or two of espresso in the mornings and then later goes to a neighborhood cafe run by his friend Enzo, and then at night comes back down to chow on whatever Adelita seems to have left him for dinner, which is usually between a two and four person serving of mouthwatering traditional Italian food. This passage about a typical night home for Montalbano is from page 157. Slipping on a pair of underpants, he raced into the kitchen. His hunger led him straight and unveilingly to the oven. He opened it. Oh, wonder of wonders! Timbalo di riso! God only knew how long it had been since he'd eaten any. Not bothering even to set the table, he simply spread a large napkin over the oilcloth, set a bottle of wine and a glass down on it, grabbed a fork from the drawer, and attacked the timbalo without removing it from the pan. And he managed to make a miracle happen. That is, he didn't allow a single thought to enter his head. His brain had become a sort of blackboard on which appeared only expressions of praise for the flavor that began in his mouth and washed over his entire body, all the way to the tips of his toes from where it then resumed its journey back up to the top. The rhythm of his eating began to slow down little by little as the contents of the pan diminished. The last two or three forkfuls were merely gatherings of the rice grains left in the pan. I love that as well. It makes quite a homey feeling and it does make you feel like not that you're sitting down with him and eating with him necessarily, but that you have an idea of how his daily processes 
occur and you have an idea of how he thinks through things which is often through taking breaks and through food and this stillness of pace that Montalbano really relishes in in this small Sicilian town. The second one in terms of my topics here these moments of stillness I also found to be interestingly pursued in the novel and they also reminded me of Paolo Sorrentino's film The Great Beauty in that these last little scenes just become, at least to me, sort of breathtaking and they play an integral part into building Montalbano's character but are all the same still little scenes that I can't help but feel would be bypassed in other circumstances. One such scene from page 178 is when Montalbano goes to visit the Greek temples in his town and he finds that they've put up rare goats there as well. Stay out there on the jetty or get immediately in his car and go visit the Greek temples, which he hadn't seen for a very long time. He got in his car and drove off. Contrary to expectation, there were quite a few groups of tourists, dressed like tourists, milling about between the majestic ruins, faces half hidden by either cameras or cell phones. He was overjoyed to discover that, within the archaeological park, a plot of land had been fenced off for breeding Girgantane goats. He stopped to look at them. They were so beautiful! They belonged to an endangered species, and perhaps because they were disappearing, Montalbano found them to be the most beautiful goats he had ever seen. They had coats of rich, long hair, light brown in color, and gentle, feminine muzzles, large pink udders, and wonderful, incredibly long horns, upright and spiral. Another scene, which is certainly more serious than the previous two we've outlined, is earlier and on in the narrative on page 75, when Elena is not yet dead and the migrant crisis is the sole issue of the novel. And so he did something he had never imagined he would do. He left the station on foot and headed for the nearest church. He went in. It was completely empty. He went and sat down on a bench and started looking at the statues of saints, which were all made of wood and had the faces of peasants and fishermen. The biggest of all was the statue of the black saint, San Carlo. Who could say? It was possible that the saint, too, had arrived on these shores on a barge. There was a sudden explosion of sound. Somebody had sat down at the organ. He recognized the piece. It was Toccato and Fugue in D minor by Bach. He closed his eyes, leaned his head back, and breathed deeply, letting his chest and heart expand as the music carried him far, far away. He waited for the organist to finish. Then he left the same way as he'd come in and went to the Café Castiglione. A custard cream puff and a double espresso, please. Now he could go back to the office and sign papers. What I love about that passage in particular is that religion really isn't mentioned, save for that one scene in the novel, but I love the idea of churches and music as solace for even non-religious people, as well as religious people, because I know from my studies that churches since antiquity have been architecturally designed to change one's mood from the first step in, so I appreciate the little homage to that fact, especially in Italy, and also appreciate, again, the moment of silence that it lends to the book as a whole. Camilleri himself is also a very interesting subject to talk about, and my real curiosity about his personal life started when I read the back page of the novel. Author's note. As usual, the characters and situations featured in this novel have no connection with any real events or persons. I would like to thank Valentina Alferge, who helped me to write this book, not only physically but also by intervening creatively in its drafting. 
In other words, now that I am blind, I would not have been able to write this story, nor those that I will hope to follow, without her. And I read that, thinking, wow, I did not know that he was blind. You know, I knew that he was quite old, especially when he started writing these detective fictions, but that was one thing that really shocked me as a reader, you know, that had just finished one of his books, and I was quite captivated by it. I finished it, you know, in a week, and I was able to write this episode quite fast after that as well. So I did start to kind of, in not investigate, but I was curious about his life. The journey started when Camilleri, who recently died at the age of 93, published his first Montalbano mystery at the age of 69. Reportedly, the series initially spread through word of mouth, eventually growing into over 2,000 volumes that stand today, as well as a franchise that includes a world-famous television series. I had heard this fact from Gabriella, my Italian roommate, but apparently Vigata was inspired by Camilleri's hometown in Sicily, and the town itself actually changed its name to include Vigata in order to try to become a tourist destination for fans of the series. But that's not the only familiar bit that Camilleri included from his childhood, and Montalbano himself is reportedly said to be based on the author's father. Another tidbit as well, something that I even noticed when I was reading the English translation of the novel, was that some of Camilleri's famed political commentary shines through his characters. Let's just say that he has much to say about the migrant crisis of 2016. I've linked a few articles about his life down below if you're interested in reading more. As we're coming to a close here, I don't know if y'all ever get this feeling, but when I set out to read and especially review certain pieces of literature, I often feel as if the book will somehow be above me, and that I either won't understand it or won't be able to do it justice in my review. I understand that at the end of it, it's quite impossible to completely cover any work in its entirety unless perhaps you spend your entire career on one novel. So I have to admit honestly that this novel was one of those uncertain pieces for me. Perhaps not the best choice for the outro, but regardless, I hope you all enjoyed this episode on a book fresh off of the presses and are excited for next week's episode. Cue the announcement, Malcolm Gladwell. Up there on my list of favorite authors and number one on my list of favorite intellectuals. If I haven't been hyping up his new book, Talking to Strangers, enough, then I have not been doing my job as a literary podcaster. It comes out on September 10th, tomorrow, if you're listening to this episode as it is airing, and my review on it, as well as my review on his new audiobook, is going live next week on Monday. You guys, you're not going to want to miss this one. If you enjoyed the discussion and would like to hear more from me, there is an episode of DH&I for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our back catalogue of episodes. 2019 is the year of Didion, so if you'd like to follow along in my quest to read Joan Didion's collective works or learn more about the movement to bring lit back to people, everything can be found at didionandhawthorne.blueberry.net, and remember that Blueberry is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. Now you can also follow the show on Twitter with at didionin, two ends total. I'll be posting about new lit releases, reading lists, and of course the new projects and episodes relating to DH&I. Still there? One more thing then. Remember that leaving a comment or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other Guilty Pleasure podcast platform helps leverage the show so that other literature enthusiasts can find the community. In other words, it helps a ton. Auf Wiedersehen!